Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Ahead of Sea Japan in Tokyo this week, we spoke to James Fru, director of consultancy for Maritime Strategies International, for a new in focus episode of the Maritime Podcast, looking at shipping markets outlook with a focus on shipbuilding industry impact. Welcome, James. Thank you, Marcus. We're going to be talking about shipping markets, which have faced an unprecedented range of impacts over the last year with the pandemic and the resulting supply chain capacity crunch, container freight rates, port congestion, volatile oil prices, and most recently, the impact of the conflict in Ukraine on dry bulk and energy markets. James, to start off, could you take our audience through the main trends that MSI has seen for key sectors of shipping? containers, dry bulk and tankers, the main trends over the last year and where you see these sectors heading. As you say, Marcus, what a couple of years, pandemic and then a war in Europe, you really couldn't make this up. It's fair to say that if you looked at MSI's forecast back in October 2019, the way in which the world has turned out is, is somewhat different, to put it mildly. I actually entered the container market in 2007, and I was resigned to never seeing another container market like it in terms of strength of vessel earnings, strength of freight rates. And in fact, this has, of course, exceeded all expectations. It's a remarkable market. In terms of what we see as sort of having driven that, I think trade growth only tells a small part of the story. MSI's forecast for trade growth or estimate of trade growth in 2021 was around 7%. We think overall vessel demand grew by slightly north of 20%. So the difference between those two numbers is what we'd call sort of the great supply chain snarl up, where we saw sort of significant disruption at ports, inland supply chains, lack of containers, all combining to make that sort of highly efficient global logistics system a lot less efficient. And there were some sort of laws of unintended consequences too. I mean, obviously now no one really mentions the Trump trade tariffs, but one of their sort of hidden elements was increasing the tariff on importing the chassis, which is the part of the truck that the container actually sits on, by 200%. So effectively, Chinese imports uh, or Chinese exports of container chassis to the US effectively dried up over 2020. There wasn't the US production capacity for those assets either. So we saw a, a total shortage of container chassis. We've also seen a shortage of truck drivers. We've seen um, a shortage of the containers themselves. We've seen port workers getting sick. All of this has sort of been sand in the system, little grit between the wheels has made everything a bit less efficient, but been sufficient to push vessel growth up by more than 20%. We still see for containers a lot of this inefficiency continuing through the remainder of this year. We think probably by Q4, the land side constraints will start to ease. And I think that is the order that we'd suggest is going to will take place. You'll see that the land side constraints easing first, then things will get better at the ports, and then things will get better at the vessels. I don't think you can see the, the vessel market turning around on its own until you have the, the, the land side constraints becoming less lessening as well. 
for, from a shipbuilding point of view, obviously, this has led to sort of colossal investment. And, you know, the order book's north of 6 million TU. It's uh, been uh, 5 million TU added in, in 2021. We expect another 1.5 million this year. So containers, we've seen a red-hot market. As I say, we expect to see that market beginning to unwind. Even though we see actually trade growth continuing through 2023, 2024, the, the impact of the, the supply chains unwinding will be sufficient to sort of loosen that market and also see sort of less prospects for, for ordering going forward. I've been perhaps a, a little bit uh, verbose on containers, but I think it's such a, a, an interesting market what we see going on at the moment. It, it really genuinely is unprecedented. I guess maybe I'd move on to sort of this, the second most interesting or, or strange market at the moment, which we'd really say is the LNG market, where you're in a situation where you've got LNG spot rates anywhere between sort of twenty dollars to $40,000 a day, and you've got TC rates somewhere in six figures. Uh, you know, it's close to $100,000 a day. And really, I think that's because of in the short term, a weak ton mile picture. Obviously, tons of LNG in the water, very impressive. But the miles have taken a real battering just because any LNG that's not on long-term contracts is going from the US into Europe, relatively short distances and undermining the longer haul US to Asia trade that we maybe would have seen otherwise. So that's the weak spot market, but the strong time chart market we're seeing because I think people are, are panicked that they won't have a ship in winter is the first thing. Secondly, if the gas price is $40 per MMBTU, which is, is you know, g- g- give or take where you might see it going through the rest of the year, then any sort of speculative trade has huge potential for payoffs just because the sheer numbers are so great. So the opportunity cost of not having a ship for when you need to make that trade is really high. And that's driving quite a tight time chart market, even as the spot market reflecting the, the short-term fundamentals are, are quite quite weak. Looking forward, as saying to this sort of the LNG market, we do see that trade-off between tons and miles continuing. Tons of LNG will be very strong. We're seeing a Hammerfest, the Norwegian liquefaction facility, that will come back online. We're starting to see the first volumes coming out of Calcasieu Pass in the US. Even Prelude has had their authorizations to, to restart. We do see increased volumes of LNG on the water, but the distances that we'll be traveling will be quite short. Maybe the, the only potential upside is obviously a lot of Russian LNG comes into Europe that's probably what's going to get squeezed. And that LNG will then have to go longer distances round to round to Asia. But I think beyond that, it's difficult to be too positive about LNG ton miles in the medium term, even though LNG volumes will be very, very strong. I guess I'd break it down into the tanker pitch into tons and miles. Both are quite positive for, for, for tankers. The market continues to recover from COVID. We expect total seaborne crude volumes to be up by around sort of 7% this year. That's a bit weaker than maybe we would have expected a few months ago. That's partly just to the high crude price, you know, is actually leading to demand destruction. We're probably going to see people driving less than we would when, you know, the oil price is north of $100 a barrel. Filling up your car is a lot more expensive. And I think we are going to see that impact having some sort of effect on total volumes, but we still expect strong growth. The other one that we've really been seeing since the the, uh, second half of last year has been relatively weak demand from China. 
but the uh, the Chinese economy, you know, is not in its strongest shape at the moment. We've seen that in the crude markets. We also will see that in the dry bulk markets when we get to that. I'll very quickly gloss over the, the product market. We expect the product market to be slightly stronger, maybe in terms of tons, maybe slightly weaker in terms of ton miles. Crude ton miles we see as being up 10%, product ton miles maybe up 7%. The other thing pushing crude ton miles, of course, is the potential for Venezuela to come back into the international system if we see sanctions being lifted. On the product side, obviously, you don't see that same long-haul products, but we do see uh, potentially... Uh, products being displaced by uh, product flows from the Middle East. Obviously, that's a positive ton mile impact. And a lot of those Russian uh, products will st- still need to move to Asia. We also see sort of the longer term story that we've been talking about for the last five years of refining moving closer to the wellhead. So in- increased Middle Eastern refining capacity. We're seeing the ramp up of Jizan and Alza in uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, respectively. And in the longer term, we also see the Dukum refinery coming online in Amman. So we are seeing increased Middle Eastern product exports. And very briefly to touch on, on, on Russia and, or, and its impact on the dry bulk market, obviously, the war does have a direct impact both on, on Russian coal exports. We see those as potentially being negatively affected. And also, and this is the scary thing from a human perspective, uh, in terms of grains exports out of the Black Sea, that accounts for around 25% of total global grains trade. And it's difficult to see much planting going on in Ukraine this year as a result of the war. So I think we are quite afraid of what will, that will mean for, for food prices. Obviously, that will... Maybe in a ton mile effect, uh, mean that the Middle East has taken more grains from places like Australia. We, we do see some pressure from the Russia conflict. And then the wider elephant in the room, what's going on with the Chinese economy, weak China, uh, domestic property market in China. That accounts for about 16% of global steel demand on its own, by the way, the Chinese property market. If you're enjoying listening, make sure you never miss an episode of the Maritime Podcast by subscribing on the app of your choice. I think particularly on the container side, you touched on the size of that new building order book. I think you said it was over 6 million TU, 6.5 million TU. How is the order book across the various different sectors spread across the big shipbuilding nations? And what does that look like? Sure. So maybe let me break that down into two different um, chunks, talking about the order book uh, in aggregate and then looking at it in in maybe a little bit more detail across the different countries. So as you said, uh, six and a half million TU containers, give or take 20, 20 for 25% of the fleet, it's obviously heavily weighted towards the big ships. And I think that sort of limits our potential expectations for future contracting in big ships. We do see a bit of filling in, maybe around sort of this year, the 7,000 TU vessels. I think you know, various vessels have been branded as the old Panamax killers, the vessels that are going to push out the, the 4250s or the old 5,000 TU narrow beams. I think probably these 7,000s are the Panamax killers, and uh, we do see maybe some more ordering there. Going forward, it's, it's really going to be around the smaller sizes for the next couple of years, I suspect, rather than even more big tonnage. I think the LNG order book's a very strange topic at the moment because you've got almost a ghost order book, which is these Qatari orders. We believe Qatar is going to be ramping up its LNG capacity. I think that's pretty clear. They've reserved yard space 
but those aren't hard orders yet, and no one quite knows which shipyards they're at. And I think that sort of ghost order book is something we'll come back to when we talk about the position across countries. Briefly, in terms of tankers, you've got, what, give or take, 50-plus million deadweight in the order book. That's around 8% of the fleet, and we see that unwinding quite quickly. We see a lot of those tankers hitting the water this year. Really, we see quite a light tanker order book once we've got this year's set deliveries out of the way. Bulkers are slightly higher, 65 million dead weight. That's 7% of the fleet. And that's more of an even distribution in terms of the delivery schedule. It's not all going to be this year quite in the same way that the, the tankers are. So I think that would be my comments in terms of the aggregate order book position. To, to delve into that a little bit by country is an interesting situation, actually, where obviously we've seen a huge surge of ordering this year. and Actually, interestingly, quite a lot of that's gone to China and quite a lot of that in terms of containers where you might have expected some of those vessels to, to, to go to Korea. So we've seen the Chinese take on about 32 million GT of container ships in terms of new building, as opposed to sort of 23 million in, in, in Korea. And I think that's been an interesting dynamic in that you've seen a lot of Chinese yards that have built container ships before, but haven't got a strong track record in container ships. So maybe yards like Jiangnan Changxing, Jiangsu uh, Xinfu, even Nax and Dax. I mean, these are good shipyards, but they're shipyards with more of a reputation for building tankers and bulkers. And in fact, they've been very quick to ramp up their container intakes over sort of 2021. And I think in a way, that reflects all the impact of sort of consolidation or the, the structure of the Chinese uh, shipbuilding industry, because a lot of those orders, if you look at them, they're either starry designs or CSSC designs. So they're not the shipyard's own internal designs, then you know, the generic ones. And I think that's really been a great benefit to the Chinese shipbuilding industry, that you've both had the availability of generic designs and yards able to buy and build to those generic designs. And also, I think what's helped has been the joint marketing. The Chinese shipbuilding industry has been brought together under just a couple of different umbrellas. And maybe when you've come for an inquiry at, say, I don't know, Wenchong or even Hudongzhong, and that yard has been full, they've been able to direct you to another yard within that same shipbuilding group. And I think that's played out very positively for, for the Chinese. As I say, for the first time, we've really seen the Chinese actually take larger amounts of orders than the Koreans. I don't think that's this is a situation the Koreans are particularly nervous about yet, I have to say. I think this is something that's going to play out over the longer term. If you look at really the amount of, sort of orders the Koreans have taken through 2023, 2024 delivery, you know, they, they are pretty close to full capacity. The the only area where there might be uh, potential for a few more uh, new buildings will be on ta- in terms of tankers. But if you look at Korean container ship order book for the next couple of years, if you look at LNG vessels and take into account those ghost Qatari orders, because you might say that DSME looks a little bit light in terms of, in terms of sort of total tonnage, but we think that a lot of those Qatari orders will end up at DSME and thereby filling in um, the DSME order, order book. I don't think the Koreans need to worry at the moment. I think maybe in the longer term, 
once this current order book unwinds, looking through into 2026, the question will become a lot sharper for, for the Koreans in terms of whether their shipbuilding model of the sort of the big three Korean shipyards can stack up against sort of the, the Chinese model of generic designs produced by Starry or, or CSSC and those, those joint marketing arrangements. I think that's a really interesting question to be honest, and perhaps one we can come back to. This is, a, I, th- I would say, a transition period for Japanese shipbuilding. At the moment, it's being kept uh, kept going by its sort of strength in traditional areas such as dry bulk, and particularly we see that in Oshima with sort of a very or relatively healthy order book. But I think more broadly, we're seeing a period of consolidation, a period where maybe the Japanese yards have gone away to work at new designs for ships, potentially sort of uh, low carbon or zero carbon vessel technologies. That's obviously a bit of a challenge for the Japanese, given that Japanese shipyards haven't really embraced the MEGI or, or even the, the XDF gas injection engines so much um, historically. That's going to be challenging for them in terms of producing new, design, new designs for, say, ammonia fuel vessels. But I think there is a lot of investment, a lot of work being done there. We have also seen some of the sort of the restructuring of the Japanese yards players exiting. But I think at the moment, the situation of Japanese shipbuilding is under pressure. There's a strong reliance on their traditional strengths of sort of building bulkers for domestic owners. And, and we do expect some more of those orders to, to emerge in 2023. But yeah, Japanese shipbuilding is going through a period of consolidation and it's probably not very easy times for them, to be honest. You, there's quite a lot of different topics in there. I think some of those we'll yeah. come back to touch on later in the, the course of this conversation, particularly around consolidation and those future ship types. Um just bringing it back slightly to the closer sort of picture of the demand and supply, what's the current situation doing to new build prices? And are there much in the way of slots now for the next two, three years? I'd say for the next two years, it's, it's difficult. You might fit in the odd tanker, but no, really, if you want to contain a ship, you're waiting until 2025, I would say, and, and similarly really are on LNG. So, so the yards are pretty, pretty full at the moment. And yeah, new building prices have have ballooned accordingly. I guess the question is whether you believe that, that can be maintained. And I think when we think about new building prices, we, we tend to think about the three Cs, currency, costs, and cover or forward cover. So how much capacity the yards have uh, on order against their, their, their shipbuilding capacity. In terms of forward cover, it's extremely high at the moment. It's Difficult to see that being replenished at the same rate as it will be run down. We don't forecast you know, container ship orders to keep going at the same rate. In fact, we see container ship orders coming off quite strongly. LNG, I think, yeah, there may be a bit more positivity. And of course, you have got those ghost orders that we believe will come out of the woodwork for the Qatari project. Again, probably not to, to the same extent. Tankers and bulkers will help, particularly, we believe, sort of maybe on the tanker side. But it, it is difficult, and we do expect the order book and forward cover to, to start unwinding from the end of this year onwards. We do expect maybe a bit more momentum in, in this year. But beyond that, I think it's difficult to be too bullish on the forward cover. So that's the first C. On the costs, obviously, steel, price, steel plate prices are still extremely high. Forecasting steel plate market is very difficult, but I think... Yeah, when you see prices having run up to such levels, if you look at that chart, there's probably more 
potential for it to fall and it continues to rise. So we do see potential weakness in, in, in costs as well. And also, I think in terms of currencies, we don't so much expect the, the one and the yen to weaken as the US dollar to continue to strengthen. And I think that's simply just the effect of insecurity, global instability, the, the fact there's actually a shooting war going on. I think there you see a bit of a, a flight to safe assets, and that's probably pushing up the dollar price, which in turn relatively speaking, is depressing their Asian shipbuilding currencies. So I think all of those three Cs, forward cover, currency and cost, probably imply that towards the back end of this year, and particularly next year, we may start to see uh, new building prices begin to unwind. Okay, so it's not going to keep that sort of momentum that we've been seeing, which would be quite phenomenal, especially from where you look at where the shipbuilding market was. You touched... um, several times actually on the topic of consolidation, the Chinese consolidation. We had attempted consolidation in Korea with the GSME and HHI. And you and also consolidation in Japan. Is this a trend that's going to continue or do you see how do you see this all playing out? It's a really interesting question. I think within China, at least the the the, the next sort of five to ten years as I say, I think the consolidation has actually been remarkably successful in terms of the, the joint marketing arrangements, the ability to just to buy designs off the shelf. I think that's been extremely successful and we don't really see that unwinding within, within China for, for, I'd say, almost the next decade, really. You may see Chinese overall capacity expand, but I think that will be under that consolidated umbrella. Korea is a bit of an interesting one, I'd say. You've obviously got the Korean specialist yards, such as places like Mipo, who have been very badly hurt by weak demand for MR tankers or LPG vessels. And I think those yards will continue to be in a very challenging situation. And you may see some further consolidation on the smaller yards. In terms of the big three, HHI, DSME and Samsung, as you say, it's been attempted consolidation uh, of, of DSME and HHI, and that's been blocked. I think what I'd say there is that the rationale behind that consolidation was always more financial than operational or or, or structural. It really was the issues with DSME's balance sheet. And those issues are probably less acute as of today with LNG new building prices at $250 million a ship, as you say. It's a remarkable run-up in in pricing, and that probably makes those financial challenges less acute. We've also seen sort of equity uh, equity issuances. I think Samsung's significantly improved its uh, financial position last year through another equity issuance. So I'd say in Korea, we see actually maybe not so much need for consolidation amongst the big yards, but it is the case that some of the smaller specialist yards that are reliant on, say, product tankers or LPG carriers, I think they are in quite a perilous position. Again, Japan is the very... I I think some of the the issues the shipbuilding industry face, maybe they're most acute, to be honest, in, in Japan, where you've got great quality shipyards, places like Fukuoka, building chemical tankers, but with pretty small order books. A lot of these yards in quite small places, you know, they're very small towns or, or, or almost villages on the coast. There's not a huge amount of infrastructure around them. The ability to sort of consolidate operations 
is far more limited. Maybe you can consolidate marketing in the same way as the Chinese have done. I think that will help a bit. But I think we probably expect some downwards pressure on the wider sort of Chinese, on the wider Japanese shipbuilding industry. The Chinese feed into that because historically the Chinese wouldn't build or weren't credible builders of LPGs or chemical tankers. And now they are, and that's quite a significant source of competition for sort of the smaller traditional Japanese yards. It is a difficult situation, to be honest, to be a small Japanese shipbuilder in, and probably we see sort of consolidation um, and maybe diversification as being one of the ways out of that. You mentioned that about the standard designs and things like that, particularly in China. But one thing we are seeing at the moment is a lot of potentially new designs coming out. You've uh, seen approvals and principles and so forth for alternative fuels and so forth as, as the industry tries to decarbonize. How is that going to affect demand for the different yards and things like that going forward? I think some pretty serious efforts to decarbonize shipping, especially over, I'd say, the second half of this decade. And you can start to see that in terms of, sort of us, our scrapping forecast too. If nothing else, we expect to see sort of over, well over 100 million deadweights of tankers being scrapped over the next five years. So I think we will see, we will see significant investments in alternative fueling. I think in terms of that sort of mix, it, it will be slightly horses for courses. I think probably the big long haul vessels, we probably see ammonia as being the thing to fuel in the longer term. I think um, for shorter haul vessels such as sort of methanol, we see it sort of viable. And you will obviously see for the offshore operations, you'll see some hybrid solutions with batteries, also sort of liquid organic hydrogen carrier power vessels. I think we do expect that. And that maybe is a potential source of um, optimism for the Japanese builders. You, you'll see a lot of investment, a lot of it, as you said, the, the sort of the AIPs coming out looking at ammonia. I think probably we'd say the top Korean and, and, and Chinese yards are, are at least as well placed as the Japanese to do that. The sort of vessels that would be needed at the small end of the scale maybe suit the sort of traditional strengths of Japanese shipbuilders slightly better. And I think that's maybe where we see slightly more optimism from a Japanese perspective. One of the things when I talk to ship owners is with, with the whole decarbonisation part, there's quite, a, there's quite a bit of nervousness around ordering a ship at this time, because you don't know uh, what the future fuel is actually going to be. So, you know, you've got these sort of factors that are blocking decarbonisation for shipping. Do ship, well, shipyards have a role in helping to unblock these for the owners? Yeah, I think so. I think more flexibility in terms of designs. We've seen, obviously, masks, methanol ships, they are dual fuel. We also see sort of potential dual fuel ammonia to LNG. I think also the sort of leasing structures that uh, shipbuilders can put in place to sort of lessen the uh, residual value risk that owners are taking on by, by choosing a, a technology. I think that's part of it. But I think a big chunk is going to be just around the flexibility and the ability to retrofit vessels. And I think thinking about how you can put in LNG ammonia dual fuel engine but make sure you've got enough void space in the hull to put in whatever other kit you may need to handle the second generation of, say, ammonia storage tanks or, or, or be what it may. So the, I think that's part of it. To me, though, to be clear, I think the shipyards have a role to play. I think the owners have a role to play. I think the charters have a huge role to play. And I think that's probably where 
I'd say we've seen some of the least efforts or some of the least sort of concrete steps where charters need to, um, in a charter party, the charter is responsible for the fuel. And we've not seen the you know significant investments by the charters, apart from Fortescue. Fortescue Metals is an honourable exception there. But otherwise, we've not seen significant investments by the charters to create sources of alternative fuels. And we've also not really seen the willingness to pay for any sort of cost differential of fitting a dual fuel engine. The only area we have seen some efforts there is in terms of LNG dual fuel, obviously tankers, particularly some bulkers. I think we're sceptical as to the the longer-term environmental credentials of, of LNG. And yeah, I think that's an area we'd like to see greater innovation and greater sort of commitment kind of from the charters. I actually think that the, the efforts of the shipyards, they're not insubstantial, but I think the greater lifting from now on has to come from the charters themselves. Okay, so the ball is, to, to a greater extent, in the charters' core, especially because of that fuel price differential that you've got. Yeah. Looking at, to round this off, looking at what other sort of new area of development that comes with that energy transition, that is just entirely new types of vessels, CO2 carriers, ammonia carriers. What sort of, what do you see in this area for, in terms of developments of new vessel types and demand for these? I think this is an area where the Japanese built traditional builders can take some, some comfort. We don't see big long haul shipments of ammonia or really of methanol although maybe slightly more or 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 indeed of co2 we see those as being regional distributions i think if you look at the globe and see opportunities for cheap electricity which is really what you need for green ammonia if you're looking at that sort of um that that map You've got the ability of sort of significant hydro and wind resources in Northern Europe. You've got huge solar resources in places like Australia, in North and South America. So we see that sort of evolution of the ammonia trade being more of a a regional distributive trade than a sort of a long haul trade where Australia will set itself up as the the new Saudi Arabia of ammonia, if you'll let me use that term. We, We don't really see that. Similarly, in terms of CO2, I think we again see those as more short haul trades, maybe taking sort of CO2 capturing European industry to the North Sea to be reinjected into old oil wells. Similarly, even in Northeast Asia, we see that maybe as being a, a trade down to Southeast Asia to, for reinjection into the, the Southeast Asian oil wells. We don't see those as being huge long term trades. I think we do see the blue economy as being a lot more important though going forward, both in terms of aquaculture. But above all, in terms of energy, and I, I think we're very, very bullish indeed on service operation vessels, the vessels that will support offshore wind farms throughout the course of their life. And we also believe sort of floating wind has huge potential, again, in Northeast Asia. And I think if I were a Japanese shipyard, those would be the industries I'd be looking towards, the design of, sort of service operation vessels, or of aquaculture in and of itself and then potentially the shorter-haul ammonia carriers, CO2 carriers. To me, that's probably where the future for the smaller Japanese yards lies. We've covered an amazing amount of ground today. Thank you so much for taking the time and giving us your expertise today, James. Sea Japan is being held in hybrid format in Tokyo from April 20 to 22nd. Thank you all for listening, and until the next episode of the Maritime Podcast, stay safe.